Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You know, that is the million dollar question. Do you want to change that about yourself? And the truth is that for most addicts, when you hit rock bottom, that's when you want to change. When your life has become unmanageable and you don't know what else to do, you want to be able to figure it out. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheet, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, um, talking to you all the way from Florida. Usually it's the Midwest, Indianapolis. And love that I am able to do this anywhere, any place, any way, all over the world. Now, most of you get this pre-recorded at a different date, but we are talking to you at a different time today, just so that I could be able to interview um, an author and really not only a survivor, but a thriver when it comes to sex addiction and sexual abuse and, you know, it's he wrote this book called Toy Cars, and it's one man's journey from trauma to triumph. And it is an amazing book. If you've had trauma in your life, especially around sexual abuse, it's a hard read. The beginning is a very hard read because he graphically describes not only the abuse, but the trauma that he went through. Um, and his confusion and the fact that he didn't know how to proceed um, and that there was trauma bonding. I remember a long time ago when Oprah did her show on sexual addiction 
I'm sorry, sexual abuse. And she was talking about the weird experience of hating the perpetration, hating the perpetrator, and wanting that very special um, connection, wanting that attention, and oftentimes wanting that sexual sensation that may have felt good. Now, in this situation, it, it was not like that. Uh, however, the, the sexual satisfaction was not really there, but certainly there was trauma bonding that occurred. And I hope that Nathan will talk with us about what trauma bonding is. I happen to know because I work with a lot of couples that are trauma bonded to each other. And so truly, you know, as a small child, he experienced this trauma bond with his, his I call him a perpetrator uh, in the book. He's referred to as a pedophile. Just to give you a little heads up, you know, I know that so oftentimes when people hear that you're married to a sex addict or you are a sex addict, that's, a, that's immediately where their head goes. Their head goes to sex addict. You're talking to a pedophile? And although child exploitation can be a type of sexual addiction, it is percentage-wise very small. And what Nathan had to deal with was something that really uh, he was he was by a pedophile. So today he's going to be talking to us about this brutal sexual experience and how he how it fused with sexual compulsivity and how he found himself in that process and grew stronger, especially grew strong enough to be able to write this book and to come out, come out with his experience. And since he has, you can imagine, uh, he has helped thousands of people all across the world. So I'm happy to have him today because I know that this book was was a, a difficult read for me. I worked in sexual abuse, but it's difficult when it's it's male on male, and it's difficult because males don't necessarily share their thoughts and feelings. They stay so isolated and keep it so locked up. And Nathan Terry has just come full circle to be able to know that he really needed to get his story out and to help to help people. That was his that was his motivation. And truly from twelve step work you you know that when you get to that twelve step and you are helping others with whatever problem you have had to deal with, it's a full circle experience. You are now giving back and you're making a difference. And as so many addicts say, um, when they're helping, they're reminding themselves of where they were 
and where they won't, you know, where they need to be. So, um, I just, I just really admire anybody who's had a struggle and decides to get back. That's what it's all about. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the situations for me when I went to become a CFAT, a certified sexual addiction therapist, I was in a room with 40 other people, most of them men and most of them in recovery. Most of them had been affected by sexual addiction, had a, uh, you know, sexual addiction and stronger and got out of it and wanted to help others. And boy, uh, there's nothing more fulfilling than getting healthy and choosing to help others. Uh, Healing people heal. You're going to find out about that as Nathan talks about hurting people hurt. Um, Just real, real excited to have him on. So let's, Let's talk a little bit about help her heal. You know, I would encourage my my listeners to get that book to learn empathy to be better people. If you've got a partner, it's to help her heal. If you don't have a partner, it is to practice the skill of empathy so that you can Really understand where somebody else is. You know what I mean? It's so important to be able to put yourself in their place. Hello. Hello, Nathan. Welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. How are you? You're on mute. I know I am because I'm talking into the mic. You're supposed to. I can't hear you. Oh, okay. I can't hear you. Oh, you didn't. You didn't call in. Okay. Remember, you were supposed to call in. You're on mute. I, I oh, there you go. I know. Right. Well, I have asked both of us to be on mute and for you to call in. But we can... So should I call in now or at 9.30? We're on the air right now. So you... On the air? Yeah. All right. Yes. I thought it was at night. I will call in right now. You know what? Uh, this is loud and clear, so let's do it this way. You've got a That's really true. strong connection, and I want That's to true. use every minute to talk with you because you have done so much to give back to the world by sharing your story. Yeah, amazing. This book is half the baby. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, would you you share with our listening audience, if you would, uh, a little bit about your story in general? And, you know, this is um, for mature adults, so no children will be listening. If you have a child in the room and you're listening on your computer, send them out. But I don't know that to be true because we talk about pretty serious subjects an awful lot. You know, this show is Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and it's about sex addiction, and yep. it's about trauma, and it's about trauma bonding. And that was your story. So tell us a little bit about your story. Okay. Um, I'm from Australia. I grew up in Australia. Um, I grew up in a little town called Queenbeam, which is just outside of Canberra. And Canberra is the capital city of Australia. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, we're talking the mid-80s when our parents would send us outside and tell us not to come home until it was dark, until it was night time, or until 6 o'clock, or until dinner time, whatever it was. So my sister and I, and I had a younger brother, but this day my sister and I, we all, you know, we would always go down to the, to the local swimming pool. Literally the whole town would go down to this local swimming pool during the summer. We'd all hang out, have fun, swim all day, and then go home at night. Um, and this one particular day, it was, I think it was just after Christmas. It was summertime. So my sister and I went down to the pool. We met up with some friends. We were swimming all day. We hung out. She left early with her friends and, and went home. And I'm like, that's fine. I've ridden my bike down to the pool thousands of times before. I'll, I'll just ride my bike home afterwards. So, um, and you were how old at that point? Weren't you eight? Eight years old. Uh-huh. So I stayed to the very end, which I'd done before. I stayed to the very end till the pool was closing. There was literally no one there. I went into the change rooms to get changed, and a man followed me in there and raped me in the shower. And the first thing he said to me was that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. Um, and so can I, can I stop you for a second? Because sure. many of my listeners don't know that I worked in sexual abuse for six years. And so the two things, as I read that chapter, um, that struck a chord in me is that almost always, inevitably, if it's a pedophile, he will tell you that he's going to hurt you and he's going to hurt your family. Because that keeps really? you in that state of fear where you have to protect your family more than protect exactly. yourself, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, exactly. For me, it was about protecting my family and, and making sure they didn't get hurt. And he started with the grooming and the manipulation straight away, telling me that this is what my family want, my parents want this, that no one likes me, everybody hates me, that he's the only one who loves me, that... Um, I love him and I don't love anyone else. And he also told me that I was looking at him at the pool, that I picked him up at the pool. Um, so that went on for about five, six years, from, from eight years old through to about 12, 13 years old, and started out very violent, very rough. And, you know, he would throw me up against the wall. He would choke me out. He would make me thin my pants. He would just beat me about the head and then, you know, rape me violently on the couch. Um, never really any words was, were, were said. He, he would never offer me any food or drink. But again, through the grooming and manipulation over these five years, it turned into a Stockholm Syndrome type relationship where I would feel love for him and I wanted to be with him and I wanted to see him, knowing what was going to happen to me, but all at the same time pushing my family away, my parents, my brothers, my sister, my, my, my friends, everyone. So it was just about him. To the point where he would talk to me, he would offer me food, he would put his arm around me and, and take me into the bedroom and, and instead of just doing it on the couch, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, he, he abandoned me. And, and so for our listening audience, I know he said that he didn't offer him any food or do blah, blah, blah. But as it became a full-fledged relationship, it went from very transactional and very sexual to then this relationship where he was offering him food. He was talking to him kindly, even if he followed that with something very abusive. But he was really conditioning Nathan 
to want to love him. And, of course, this was a man who was saying, you do love me. Tell me you love me. I want to hear it. You love me. I know you love me. And so, Nathan, you resisted that at first. And, mm-hmm. yeah, you did. And, and that went on for quite a while. And even when you knew you were going to be hit, pushed, sexually abused again, you didn't do it. And then eventually, in that Stockholm Syndrome, you started needing that attention and responding, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, I would ride my bike to his house. I would wait for him outside. I would, you know, wait on the corner of the street until I saw him because I, again, knowing what was going to happen and the hurt, the pain and everything else, I, I needed to see him. I wanted to see him. So I, at, at 13 years old, he abandoned me. And for, you know, two odd years, I was like, well, what am I? What, you know, where do I belong? Who am I? What the fuck is going on? Am I gay? Am I straight? Am I this? Am I that? You know, who do I belong with? My parents. I, I don't want to be with my parents. I don't want to see them. I just want to be with this man. I want to be with this man. And it just built and built and built. And the depression built and the shame in there. And you said he abandoned you, but that was an unusual part of the story because you you didn't see him, but you realized something was wrong. You went up to the house, and you had seen a picture that he had there for a while, and then it was gone, of a young girl. You wondered if he had been abusing her, too. She had that look in her face. And then... What I thought was fascinating is that a woman comes to the door and it's like she can read you, right? Would you tell yeah. our listeners about that? That was a fascinating part of the story. And they so, abandoned him. So, yes, I, you know, when I was looking at his house, he was, there was a photo of, his, of, of him with this young girl, with, him, with his arm around this young girl. He was happy, smiling. She was just kind of looking off to the side, kind of like I was when I was there with him and, and she wasn't very, you know, she didn't want to be there. Um, so after he abandoned me, as I say, I would go to his house and wait for him and see if he was there for months and months and months, nothing there. But then all of a sudden I saw a car out front and, and I saw a movement in the house. So I went and knocked on the door, um, thinking it was him. Maybe he had a new car or whatever it was. A lady answered and which I later found out was his wife or his ex-wife, and she was cleaning out the house. And she literally knew, obviously she knew what was going on, but she asked me why I was there, why I wanted to see her husband. And, or if she, that's right, she first asked me if I knew him. And I said yes. And, and um, all of a sudden, um, another figure came running to the door and it was this little girl in the photo, and it was his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she was probably a few years younger than me, and she kind of just hid behind her mum looking to see who it was. Um, and, yeah, so she kind of knew, because at the very end she said, I can't remember the words exactly, but she said, did, did, did my husband hurt you or, or something like that? And I just, I, I ran away. Um so it was his wife and his daughter. The girl in the photo was his daughter, and it was just, I couldn't take my eyes off his, off his daughter. I was just mesmerized by her, and, and it just kind of rocked me. And, I, and that's right, she told me that I'll never see him again. 
Um, and and did you think at that point that he might have been in jail? Now, as I asked I Nathan this, he's looking quizzically. It, it, that didn't, that never, <laughs> you didn't wonder about that back then at, at 13. Yeah, I think back then, I probably didn't even think about him being in jail until years and years afterwards. I just thought, oh, he's gone, or maybe he found a new boyfriend, or he just left town. I, I think I was still too young to realize that what he did to me equates to jail and, and, and he was doing wrong and, and, and now he's wherever he is. Um, so I, that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I did, but I, I, that wasn't at the forefront of my, of my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't. So from there, yeah, like, like I said, I was just lost and I didn't know who I was, where I was, where I belonged, who I belonged with in my game. I strangely would tell me how special I was. Was I special? You know, he told me I was much more special than all the other boys in town. Um, yeah, and I thought, am I, am I this special? So after about two, three years of, of a depression of, of just not knowing who and where and when and how and why and what the hell am I doing with my life and where I belong, I, I live near an industrial part of, of, of Canberra, of the city, and in this, in this industrial part of town, there are lots of sex clubs and, and cruise lounges and, and gay clubs and I would ride my bike there as a 15-year-old and I would go in there, I would sneak into these little places and, and um, I, would, I would have these men rape me again. I just needed to feel that feeling. I, I needed to, to, to be in that. But then after that, um, you know, as these men are getting dressed or just sitting there or lying down, I would beat them up and bash them and rob them and do what I could to hurt them. And that was my fuck you to the world. That was my way of getting my power back, my way of feeling alive again, my way of just owning something. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that I know, and I want to explain to our listening audience, being a certified sexual addiction therapist like I am, is that when trauma occurs early on, um, there's a fusing that can occur where you want the attention but you also hate yourself for having the secret and not being able to share it and knowing it's wrong, but wanting it to be right. And what Nathan did at 15, he figured out how to go to those brothels and bathhouses and cruising sites. And I mean, he, as a 15-year-old, is exploring, and I won't be graphic here because we do have a lot of sex addicts that listen that have been there and I don't want to trigger them, but he figured out a way to go to, through all these different experiences to get his needs met. And then as you just heard him talk, and he discovered things he didn't even know about because he's only 15 and he only had that pedophile experience over and over and over again. But his need for sex became a huge driver and his need to rage. And so he brutalized these people in addition to being sexualized 
And Patrick Carnes, who is the father of sex addiction, says that that's eroticized rage. That was what he felt from his pedophile. That's what he felt from being abandoned. And that's what he felt from having been sexualized so early. And so his eroticized rage came out. And it became another driving force in his life. So continue. I just wanted to explain to them. <laughs> no, that's interesting because I'm learning from you also now. <laughs> okay. Good, good, good. Um, and it, it's funny because the past four years and years, but everyone asks me, are you gay, are you straight, this, that, and the other. So mm-hmm. you go back to these sex clubs and the sex they had with these men was, it was the most disgusting thing in the world. I hated it but I needed it. I still got hard. I came, I, I got off, but I didn't want to be there, but there was nowhere else I needed to be or I wanted to be, and I had to be there. So that went on for quite a while. And, and again, just the depression, the shame, the, the toxic masculinity just kept building up as a 15-year-old. I started drinking. I would start stealing my dad's drinks and his cigarettes to numb myself and numb the pain. Um, and then just kind of fell in wrong, with the wrong crowd and, 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 you know, started smoking crack and lots of ecstasy and acid and speed and anything I can get my hands on, again, to numb the pain, sex to numb the pain, a lot of sex. And, you know, I remember the very first time I had sex with a girl, I was 17 years old, and it's, it's in the book. Um, she came over to my house. We, we had sex. It was over in a, in, in a second, but... I should have been so happy and because I've always been attracted to women. I've always loved women. And, and again, going back to the men, it was just the feeling. There was never any intimacy. I wouldn't hold these men, touch these men, kiss these men, hold their hands, caress intimacy. But with women, I knew I always wanted that. Mm-hmm. So when I finally had that with this woman, when I finally had that for the first time as a 17-year-old, I was happy for a minute or two. But then the shame and the toxic masculinity built and built and built, and I. Oh, sorry. That's on your computer. <laughs> the shame, the toxic masculinity was building and building and building, and I hated myself for it, and I felt so angry at myself, and the rage was building. So I had to go back to these sex clubs straight afterwards and be raped by another man, have another man violate me, do what he had to do to me. So I felt normal mm-hmm. and I felt validated and I felt accepted. And I, 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 again, I, I, again, with the beating up just to get my power back from that. So it was very weird in that, you know, I finally got what I wanted. I finally got this woman and slept with this, slept with a lady for the first time. As soon as that happened, I, I needed to go be with the man because that was what I knew. That was what felt comfortable. Whereas with this woman, and I loved it, it was, it was, it was a foreign thing for me. Yeah, um, it, it was very foreign, but in actuality, you know, your whole sexuality was confused, and you didn't yeah. know who you were. And, you know, this would have been the 80s still, right? You would have been at 17 or 18, how old, what year was that? No, so 17, 18, it would have been... Because I finished high school in 95, so it would have been about 96, 97, so late 90s. Well, there certainly wasn't much talk about bisexuality or, you know, my belief is sexual um, 
your sexuality is on a continuum and you're born a certain way and then your bisexuality is in the middle, heterosexuality is over here, homosexuality is over here, and trauma can move the dial towards homosexuality, but biologically that's not who you are. That's Mm -hmm. the trauma. And our psyches are our biggest sex organ. And so your trauma could move you over there, um, even if, as I remember earlier in the book, when you saw the movie with Jacqueline Bissett in it, <laughs> you were so happy because you were aroused by her and you were, you, you were attracted to her and you, you yeah. said, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not gay. You, know? you yeah. didn't say that. I'm, yeah. I'm paraphrasing that. But it was a realization that you could be attracted to a woman. And that was, gosh, it's 11, 12, 13? Yeah, yeah, it was the movie class when she was having sex with the, the lead female, with the lead male character in an elevator. And I, yeah, I felt, I got aroused and I got a heart on. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? What is this? And I had to run away and leave the room. <laughs> and, and so what we know in sex addiction is that there are men that can be attracted to men because they're not gay but they enjoy that kind of sexuality. And that was that trauma bonding for you. It was your first sex. It was horrific. I mean, literally, not to be too graphic, but I wondered how you didn't end up in an emergency room. I mean, you're an eight-year-old boy. He ripped you apart. And so you had all that confusing um, physiological, biological, and psychological concern and and so I want to I want to talk about you I said before you came on you're not just a survivor of sexual abuse you're a thriver how did you get healthy how did you figure it out okay so fast forward I was you know I, that was Canberra I, I from there I moved to Sydney Sydney, I got invited to come to New York to act and, and to write and to study acting and, and a lot of that stuff. So I moved to New York thinking I could get away from it all and start a new life in New York and, and, and just forget about the past. But, you know, being New York, you can get what you want, when you want, how you want it, quicker, cheaper. It, it sucked me back in and sucked me back in twice as hard. So I fell into my addiction of, of drinking, of sex, of, of drugs. I was shooting heroin. I was smoking crack. I was... Lots of violence, hanging out with the wrong crowd. Um, it's a wonder you're alive. It's a wonder. I was going to say, yeah, hit my rock bottom and almost killed someone. Almost killed myself. I tried, attempted suicide a few times, um, and I literally had no one around me anymore. All my friends had abandoned me. Didn't want to be with me. We're just moving forward because they saw the road and the destruction I was going down. Mm-hmm. Um, just after my birthday, I spoke to my best friend and said, listen, I need to talk to you. I need to see you. She told me literally on my birthday night that she was done with me. She wanted nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. So she agreed to meet with me one more time. We went to a cafe in the West Village. Um, it was February. It was freezing cold. She was sitting literally at the middle table of the whole cafe. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I walked in there. She was done. She was short with me. She was, you know, what do you want? Let's do this. I want to get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. 
And I just sat there and as she was about to get up and leave, I just blurted out, I was raped as a kid. And she sat back down and, and I kind of told her the who, the what, the when, the where. I didn't get into the sex and, and the violence with men yet. I, I wasn't mentally there. I wasn't prepared for that. But I told her I was raped as a kid and I told her about the drugs and the, you know, everything else that was going on, the drinking. And so she told me that day that she was going to be there for me. She was going to support me. And I think I, I will, I guess, I was crying so much and I was speaking so loud that literally every single table around us had stopped their own conversation and was just staring at us and watching us and just watching this guy for the very first time come out and say that he was raped. Um, so she and another friend helped me get, uh, find a therapist. So I, I went into therapy and <laughs> I went into therapy thinking, yep, I've got this, it's going to be fine. I'm not going to cry. But then as soon as I sat down on that couch, I just cried and I cried for the whole hour. Um, That's beautiful. That's yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I have to say, and I will say this until the day I die, therapy saved my life. Oh. It, it really did. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't in therapy, if I didn't do that, I think I wouldn't be dead. I'd be in jail or I'd be in a gutter somewhere with, with AIDS or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, my therapist was amazing. So I did therapy with her. Through therapy, I started doing group therapy and rehab. I went to AA, Narcotics, Sex Anonymous, but I dropped the Sex and Narcotics and just went to AA because that kind of encompassed all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and can I ask you something? Okay. Was that person a certified sexual addictions therapist? Was she a CSAT? Oh, that I don't know, but she was... At the time, she was amazing and she was what I needed. And I, she could have been because there was a group of us, so... I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I can't answer that. That's fair. You know, but, the person that referred you to me, he is a CSAP, um, Doug okay. Carpenter. He's a CSAP. Yes, yes. Okay, and let okay. me just say one more thing to my audience, because when he had the courage to get honest, and it was really out of fear. It was out of fear that he was going to lose a person that he needed in his life. Yeah. There is this intimacy pyramid and it starts out, the very first layer, the very first layer is honesty. And so Nathan was being honest with her and himself and in the relationship. And the second thing that honesty brings is safety. There are five pieces to this. So safety is the next level towards intimacy. And obviously, I got cold chills when I was reading this because She made him feel safe. She said, I will help you get help. And and so the safety was there. And then he could speak his truth, which is different than honesty. So that's that third phase. And after truth, what occurred was vulnerability. He was in the midst of being vulnerable. He everybody was listening to him. and, and it didn't matter because he was being honest. He found safety. He found truth. Now he's feeling vulnerable. And that is true intimacy. And so that day he reached that triangle of intimacy and then carried that forward to his therapist and she with him. And their relationship helped 
him to heal. So now continue. <laughs> um, just on intimacy, one of, I, I, I did a talk last month at the Karen Center, which is obviously one of the biggest drive and rehab centers in, in, in the country. I was a keynote there. And one of the counselors came up to me and she said, Mason, do you know what the true meaning of intimacy is? I'm like, what? She goes, say it really slow. Yes. I'm like, into me, I see. So just looking into yourself and seeing yourself and connecting with yourself. And that just kind of blew me away again because it was, I didn't know that. I, it was something that I never really realized or saw or, or heard or, or read or, or but, um, yeah, so therapy, which was, like I said, I had told a soul for over 25 years. I didn't tell a soul. My parents, my, my, no one, no one, no one. Sam, my friend, she was the very first person I told. Uh, so I went into therapy, and it was tough. It was a struggle because I was learning these things, and I was discovering these things about me that I, I didn't know, and I was always inquisitive about it. It, it ruled my life, and, you know, from an eight-year-old boy, I had to grow up into a man to survive. I had to learn how to survive. I had to learn how to take care of myself and my parents or and my family so that they weren't going to be hurt. And, you know, in therapy, one of the first things I, I learned was my therapist would say, Nathan, at this age, if you could go back and speak to your eight-year-old self, what would you tell him? And... I would um and ah about it. I didn't know. And, you know, my therapist would kick my ass. She was a tough woman and she would, she would not let up. And I love her for that. God rest her soul. She's passed away now. Um, but she would always say, if you could go back and speak to your eight-year-old self, what would you say? What would you say? What would you say? And I would um and ah and um and ah. But then it finally hit me. It finally, you know, just got me. And what it was, what I would tell my eight-year-old self was that it was not your fault. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I realized that, and this goes for all trauma, not just sexual abuse, but all trauma, as soon as you realize it's not your fault, the weight started lifting off. It's like an onion. Those layers started peeling off, and, and, and you were able to learn more and educate. I was able to educate myself more on this and, and, and move forward and, and not be so stuck in the shame and not be so stuck in the toxic masculinity and not be so stuck in the imposter syndrome and everything that came along with it, the anger, the hatred. Um, I mean, another big thing, and I think this is my true, my true kind of rock bottom was in group therapy. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and our therapist said, Nate, you know, to the, to the group, if you can all come in next week with something that you're proud of, something that you're done, that you're really proud of, that you're, you're happy to show and share with the world and, 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 and whatnot. So the next week came, I was last to go and everyone had gone. They all had their thing and they were all proud of it. And, and when they were all talking, I could just feel the, the stress build up and I was starting to cry as, as these guys were sharing. And it was my turn. My therapist said, all right, Nathan, your turn now. What, what, what do you have? And it was, this was my true rock bottom after everything I'd been through. And I just blurted out and I said, listen, I have absolutely nothing that I'm proud of in my life. There's absolutely nothing that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share or proud to, to, to show you guys or explain or, or talk to you guys about. It just, it broke me. I was a shell of a man. I was just 
done. I was done. I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself. I was just, I had absolutely nothing that I'm proud of. But one of the guys who was there, and he was, he, he and I were the two youngest people in group. And he was overweight. He was bullied his whole life. He wrote poetry. And he said to me, Nathan, you're here. That's what you're proud of. That's what you should be proud of. This is the, the toughest thing you're ever going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just broke me even more because in that point in my life, in that, point, in that moment, I realized where I was and how much more work I had to do and just, just where I was. And, and I was so down and so lost and so alone and vulnerable and didn't know what I wanted or where I wanted to be. And I, you know, I was on the right track and moving forward, but I, I, I kind of relapsed. I fell off the wagon, so to speak. I, I went to a pub. I got drunk and did some drugs and, and just got totally fucked up and, and then got into a fight. And I, I just wanted to get beaten up. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to die. I wanted to dig myself a hole and, 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 and be done with it. Um, but then, you know, next week I was back in therapy again. I, I, I never let up. And, and that is one thing I, I, I will always say. I was totally committed to therapy and, and to getting there and then back to AA and, and getting in it and, and, and doing it. And because it was my only way of, of, of moving forward and, and um, about six months in the therapy, I, I still hadn't told my family and my parents were coming over to New York to visit me. So me and my therapist kind of came up with a plan to just speak to my parents and to explain to my parents what was going on. And, and I remember we went out for dinner. We went for dinner and, and we sat outside. It was, it was summertime here. So we sat outside and it was just the three of us. And, and I said, listen, there's something I need to tell you. And I guess my mum, being a mother, said, oh, my God, you've got a girl pregnant. I'm like, no, you owe someone money. No, you're in trouble with the police. No, you're in trouble with someone. Like, what's going on? She came up with all these excuses and all these reasons. And I'm like, no, 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 please just be quiet and listen. And, and I said I was raped as a kid. I was abused as a kid. She's like, no, you weren't. We didn't abuse you. We didn't rape you. We didn't hurt you. And I'm like, no, it wasn't you guys. It happened at the at the local swimming pool, and and told them what had happened. And um, you know, again, mum being mum, wanted to know the who, the what, the when, the where, all the details. And growing up, my mum was the disciplinarian. She was the one who would discipline us kids. And dad was a real softy. And for the first time ever, I saw the roles reverse and it just totally freaked me out. My mum was so motherly, if I could say that. She just wanted to get up and hold me. Nurturing. Nurturing. Nurturing me, exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, for the first time, my dad is the sweetest, softest man in the world. The first time ever, he was like, who is this man? I want to kill him. Who is he? Who is he? I want to kill him. I want to kill him. I'm like, it's not about that. You don't need to do that. And one of the most telling things was what my mum next said. And my sister said the same thing. My sister is two years older than me. Uh, and I told my sister just a short time after, but mum said, 
wow, that explains everything about you. Now we understand why you were the kid you were, why you did the things you did, why you isolated, why you just would be in your room all day playing with your toy cars and watching movies and not wanting to be with anyone and not wanting to hang out with anyone. And, you know, I guess that was really telling because it was, they just thought I was this young kid who was an introvert and just wanted to be on my own and, and didn't like the company of others. But then when they found out, they're like, wow, that explains it. Um, well, and if I can say so, because we've only got about three minutes left. I, as I read this book from start to finish, I said to myself, this man is going to, has a movie in his future. Uh, you know, I mean, this thing is going to go bigger and bigger and bigger. I want to remind my listening audience that the book is called Toy Cars, One Man's Journey from Tra- Trauma to Triumph. And Nathan, how do you say your last name? It's Harry. That's what I so thought. It's Harry, yeah. Yeah. So my, I, I, in the book, my family's from Malta, which is a tiny little island right in the middle of the Mediterranean, so just under Italy and, and above above North Africa, so that's where my family's from. Um, so, yeah, it's Maltese. My family's from Malta, so, but I was born and grew up in Australia. Um, so I want to ask you, what is your vision for your future? As I was reading this book, I said, this man has written an eloquent book on sexual abuse, on sexual fusing, on sexual addiction, as well as drug and alcohol addiction. And like I said, he's not just a survivor, which we don't call what you went through, you being a victim. We call you a survivor because it shows your strength and just that name, a survivor. And then really, you're a thriver. You're going to take this and, and create vision. So what are you doing right now? Yeah, so a movie, it's funny you say that, because a movie script has been written, and now we are in the process of turning that into like a six to eight part TV series, limited series, because, you know, there's only so much you can tell or you can say in two hours, but, you know, if we had eight hours, we can really tell this story as you know as as deep and as much as we want to. We can really get to the relationships and the arc of the relationships and just the 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 I guess the arc of of, of my character and the, the depression. Yeah, of your relationship. Everybody else yeah. centers around you. I want to remind our listeners that his website is www.nathanspiteri and that is s p i t e r i dot com. And you can find him on Instagram, Nathan Spateri. So yeah. you've got a lot a of things in the world. So there's a lot going on. And for me now, I have a TED Talk coming up, and it's just about raising awareness. And what I have noticed in the past year or so, um, just in me trying to get this book out and talk about this subject, is that this is still such a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. No one wants to talk about male sexual abuse. No one wants to know about male sexual abuse. Um, literally 95% of the media I've spoken to have all said, if you're a woman, we would talk to you today. Because you're a man, we are not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Or they've said, go and make it with someone else first and then come and talk to you. We don't want to be the first ones to do this story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a struggle. But for me now, it's about educating the world. It's about raising awareness. It's about moving forward and and 
is having other victims or other survivors of, of, of sexual abuse, men and women, know that they can move forward, that they can get peace, that they can get closure, that there are ways, and this is what my TED Talk is about, it's about breaking up with my abuser, it's about breaking up with shame, breaking up with toxic masculinity, breaking up with anger and hatred. There are ways to do this, there are ways to move forward. So for me, it's about raising awareness and all of that. We're in the, in the middle of, yeah. Well, I want, uh, you, you were going to say, I'm in the middle of. I was going to say, we're in the middle now of, of creating a, a, a show for men, of men talking to men about men's issues. Good. Because men don't talk about this. There is nothing like this for men. So it's going to be, you know, me possibly hosting it and me on the panel with, Experts coming in, uh, psychotherapists, people like yourselves, sex sex therapists coming in and having other male male survivors come forward or, or men who have been through addictions and abuse. And, you know, we, we sit down and we talk about this stuff and, and we, you know, for Netflix or for HBO or for a network that, we, that we're looking for now. Um, so that's that's another thing that we're where I'm in the process of, of, of getting made and, and moving forward with. So there's a lot I want to do. Nathan Spiteri, you have such a road ahead of you, and you are making such a difference. Thank you so much. I'd like to have you back on so we can talk more about trauma, more about well, sex addiction, and especially more about sexual abuse. For our listening audience, the statistics are allegedly one out of every three girls is abused by the time she's 18 by, by someone, and one out of every 10 men is. Now, that's reported cases, and what we know is that we need to double that. So if it's one out of 10, I'm, I'm sorry, what we need to know is that it's probably 50% of all boys yeah. have been abused yeah. by somebody, whether it be someone you don't know, whether it be an uncle, whether it be a cousin, whether it be a babysitter, males do get abused. So we have to end the show, but I want to thank you for everything you're doing. I want to keep in touch. I'll be on that panel. Yes. <laughs> and it's full circle for me, too, because like I said, before I did my sex addiction work, I did work specifically around sexual abuse. And so I, I am... I worked on keeping families together if it happened in the family and making sure children were safe. So let's come back on and talk some more about your healing because, uh, as he knows, uh, based on what his publisher said, when healed uh-huh. people heal, they heal others. And Nathan is very humble and says, well, I'm not healed. I'm in the process. So Bless you, and good luck to you, and let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. This was great. Oh, very much. Talk to you later. Yes. Okay, so that was Nathan Spiteri, who shared his story. I had to make sure he wasn't too graphic, only because I know it can be triggering for some of you out there. And I'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And just remember what I always say fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week. If Nathan can do it, so can you. Think about how you can give back.